In this latest episode of the Shah Communicable Research Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Jackie Long. Jackie is a research associate in the Health and Care Research Unit and currently working on the JUICE study, which aims to understand people's decision-making in relation to the use of emergency and urgent care services. Thanks for joining me today, Jackie. Hello, it's nice to see you. You recently led a paper along with Shah colleagues in the Journal of Health Expectations, uh, understanding young adults' reasons for seeking clinically unnecessary urgent and emergency care, a qualitative interview study. What is the definition of clinically unnecessary? That is actually a very contentious point. It's one of those things where everybody thinks they know what clinically unnecessary means, But when you actually try and nail it down, it's really difficult. So there's a lot of talk about people wasting emergency services time. You know, they're calling an ambulance with a broken fingernail and going to A&E with a cold. But actually, when we looked at the literature, there isn't any kind of strict definition of the problem. So... We found when we read papers, some people talked about it being minor problems, some people talked about it being non-urgent, non-serious, or even more judgmentally inappropriate. So what we found was that sometimes people judged it by a kind of triage score when they got to A&E, sometimes it was a particular condition, and sometimes it just wasn't clear how anyone had worked it out, which goes back to the question. What was clear, however, is it was always the staff's judgment that it was clinically unnecessary. So in our study, what we did was we relied on what the clinicians thought, because we're not medics, we don't have those skills. So the way we defined it for the research was it was somebody who had the treating, responding clinician considered had a health problem that could have been dealt with either by a less urgent service or by self-care so they could have gone to the chemist or a pharmacy rather than gone to another service or they could have gone to A&E rather than rung an ambulance so the point of our study was yes clearly people are making decisions for other reasons rather than just clinical judgment and we wanted to understand what those were and how much of a problem is this for urgent and emergency care services well it's a big one um particularly for the three services that we looked at in the study. So those were the ambulance service, A&E, or in some countries they're known as the emergency department or the ED. And the third group was same-day GP appointments. That's why we looked at those three services. But given I've just said nobody knows how to define it, it's very hard to decide how big the problem is. We did look at other reviews, and one of them said that they thought the prevalence of non-urgent A&E use was about 37%, but they also said that it varied from 8% to 62%, depending on which study you looked at. So it's actually really, really hard to say how big the problem is. There clearly is a problem. And the other side of the problem is about the supply of the service. It's quite interesting, when you look at the evidence it's clear that as the pressure goes up on the service, the judgments get tougher about what's considered clinically unnecessary. So something that might have been seen as quite appropriate before becomes a problem 
in quotes, because no, the actual service doesn't have the resources to meet the demand. So the goalposts shift partly depending on what the service can actually offer rather than you know, whether the problem is any different to how it was. In your paper, you identified the key finding was that young adults make clinically unnecessary use of urgent and emergency care for, for more than just convenience. Mm. So can you say a bit more about this and can you explain why it happens so much among this a particular group? So I need to rewind a bit to talk about what we did in the study and how we analysed the data. So I I will answer your question in the end, but it'll take a bit of time. So firstly, we actually recruited three different groups of people to the study, all of which have been identified as more likely to make clinically unnecessary use of services more than others. So those were the young adults, parents of young children, and people living in areas of deprivation. So that was our groups. And we interviewed 16 people from each of those groups, and then from each interview, we looked at the different drivers that seemed to have affected the person's decision, and we actually drew quite nice diagrams with lots of blobs that said, you know, yes, this was one factor, this was another, and then we tried to link those things up. So we had a kind of map of all the different things that affected people's decisions. And then we looked at each of the three groups to see was there a sort of overall theme for those that group and also were they different in the three different groups. So I think one really important thing to say is that it isn't just young adults who are using services for reasons that were more than convenience. It was happening in all of those groups and I'll talk more about that later on. So it's just to put that in context, really. So having said all that, what can I say about young adults in particular? So we focused in this paper on this because young adults tend to get a particularly bad press. Um, There's a lot about, oh, you know, they just turn up at A&E because they can't be bothered to go to the doctor. And, And we wanted to correct that impression because certainly from the people we spoke to, that wasn't what we found. It may not be true of all young adults because obviously we only had the people who agreed to take part. But for those 16, there were a number of factors that were affecting their decision and I'll I'll just talk about four. So the first one, um, not surprising, is that people were worried that their symptoms might indicate a serious health problem. And that was particularly true when the symptoms were not familiar And as you can imagine, the younger you are, the less things that you've had wrong with you. Um, So that might be something that gets easier with age. You know, you've had more things happen and you can think, oh, yes, I, I know how to cope with that. On top of that, however, what we found was that there were a number of people in this group who were reporting some kind of mental health problem. And that was higher than in other groups that we looked at. Um, And again, it's not hard to imagine if you've got anxiety or stress, it's really hard to cope with something else that might be happening. You know, if you suddenly also feel ill or you've got pain, it's hard to bear it. And you're also more likely to do something about it sooner because you can't cope. And also when you're in that state, you can't think so clearly about what to do. And that gets me on to the next reason, was that we found that other people had had a really big influence on the young adults' decisions, more so than for the other groups. So sometimes that was a health professional saying, 
I think you should do that, but much more often it was family or friends. And again, if you go back to the previous point, if you're stressed or anxious, you're quite likely to ask somebody else's advice because you're not feeling maybe so confident. You don't know how serious it is. You're already stressed, perhaps. So, so then you are going to go to your friends and your mum and say, I don't know quite what to do. And then the final thing that seemed to affect young adults more than the other groups um, was wanting to prevent the symptoms affecting their daily life. Um, So that could be work, study, childcare. And one situation that got described a lot was people finding it was really hard to get a routine GP appointment or not being able to get one quickly enough or that fitted around their work commitments. And so what they ended up doing was booking an urgent GP appointment, sometimes knowing it wasn't urgent, but not being able to wait the perhaps two or three weeks that they might otherwise have done. And that finding fits very much with other research, and it does raise questions about how this can be addressed, um, which we'll come on to later. So we've got those reasons and others as well, such as past experiences of different services. And what was nearly always happening is more than one thing was going on at the same time. So whilst one thing on its own might have been all right, when you put them together, you suddenly went over a sort of tipping point and people went and made these what were seen as clinically unnecessary decisions. So whilst on the surface it might look like convenience... When you actually dug a bit deeper, it started to look very different. And I think it's it's really interesting. When we'd done the interviews, there was almost no cases when we'd done the interview where we thought, you know what, I would have done the same thing myself. Was this work part of the JUICE study? Yes, it was, yeah. And can you tell me more about this work? And did you look into other patient groups that use emergency care services? Yeah, it was quite a big piece of work. And there were three different main elements to it. We did a review of all the previous literature around those three groups to try and identify possible reasons that had already been found for clinically unnecessary use. And we used that information to develop the interview questions um, and then we did the interview, so that was the next bit. And then alongside that, there was a national survey which looked at people's attitudes to use of urgent emergency care so there's been a couple of other papers that have been published from that survey work and there's also a paper published about the review findings so those are all out and available so very briefly in terms of the other groups as I said at the beginning it was parents of young children and people living in areas of deprivation and I'll just very quickly talk about what we found for those two groups so for the parents there was two really really strong factors that were affecting their decisions the first was about again about the concern about how serious the symptoms were and coupled with a really strong sense of a need for reassurance from a health professional so quite often people said I was almost sure it was nothing but they didn't want to risk it. They didn't want to take a chance, particularly with a young child. And linked to that was the second reason was a really big sense of responsibility that parents of young children felt, which meant they tended to make a decision to do something in a way they would not have done for an older child or for themselves. 
For people living in areas of deprivation, it was more complicated, and many of the reasons that I've already mentioned to do with young adults came up here. So they were worried about their symptoms. Mental health problems also added to that anxiety and ability to cope sometimes. They were unwilling to delay any further, sometimes due to pain levels, which could then obviously create yet more anxiety. One that did come up quite a lot was about being affected by previous good and bad experiences of different services. And people talked a lot, again, about access to GP appointments. And there's been other research done that does highlight that GP provision is generally less good in areas of deprivation. So that is going to tend to push people to look at other services. To be fair, I don't know whether that was true in the particular cases that we were looking at, but overall, that if you've got less good GP provision and you've already got other stresses, you are going to go somewhere else. And then again, um, people were affected by other people's advice or sometimes the lack of other people, in fact. So we did pick up for some people that social isolation seemed to be a bigger issue. As I said right at the beginning, this is a very small sample, but those were the things that we found were coming up from the people we talked to. And so how easy was it, or how hard was it, to recruit <laughs> participants in, for this study, and how did you go about it? Well, we used different approaches for the three different services, and we had challenges with all of them. For the ambulance service, in the control room, a certain level of calls get diverted to um, what they call the clinical services desk, where you've got paramedics who will offer advice rather than conveyance. So when the people are answering the phones, they divert a certain level of calls to these paramedics to talk to them. And at the end of those calls, if an ambulance wasn't being sent, the staff would ask whether they were willing to take part in the research interview. So that was one group. That was one of our recruitment strategies. In A&E, we literally went and sat in reception and we approached people who had been triaged as being clinically unnecessary. Um, So somebody would point them out and we would go over and ask if they were willing to have a word. Um, We then gave them the information about the study, took their contact details to speak to them later. Um, Clearly, you know, you don't ask people to make a decision on the spot, particularly when they're sitting in A&E feeling pretty bad. And then for GPs, the practices themselves identified the people they felt had had urgent appointments who they felt could have waited. And the reception staff contacted those people and asked if they were willing to be contacted. Um, And then they passed the details on to us. So that's the how. Um, In terms of the issues... There were lots of different ones. Um, I could probably go on about this at some length, but um, there were two main ones that came up which were particularly interesting. The first was there was a big gap between what clinicians thought was going to happen and what actually happened when they tried to identify people. In every situation, people are oh, yes, there's loads of these people. It'll be really easy. We'll have your numbers in no time. And in every service, when it actually came to it, the clinicians found it wasn't as easy as they thought, um, which goes right back to our beginning point, really. So sometimes they would say, oh, it's only really clear once we've done the examination. 
um, or it's only really clear once we've checked a few things out. But, of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing. So, actually, on the surface, it looked like it was going to be easy, but actually when people were asked to commit to saying this person definitely didn't need to come, it was much, much harder. And then in the ambulance service particularly, what we found was the staff were sometimes quite sure there wasn't a clinical need, but the organisation's policy said they had to send an ambulance to be on the safe side. So you've also got that sense that actually, even when the clinician thinks so, maybe the organisation thinks, well, we just have to be careful. And then the second major issue was actually getting hold of the people. So they said, yes, we're willing to be contacted. But once we actually tried to phone them, there was a lot of non-response to calls or texts. And I don't know about you, but I, I look at my phone when it rings and I think I don't know that number and I don't answer it. So I think there's a bit of a kind of overload um, that people don't want to take calls from unfamiliar numbers. So, you know, I think there were a lot of people we simply never got to answer their phone and that did seem to be a bigger issue with young adults. And also we did find that less people in that group were willing to agree to take part in the first place. And we don't know the reasons for that, but they may be linked back to the very reasons that we were talking about earlier, um, about busy lives, poor mental health, etc. Do we know how much of an impact has lockdown been on emergency care services compared to pre-COVID? I mean, it was really interesting when you asked that question because we did this whole research before COVID was even considered. Um, so obviously the actual research, we had nothing around this, um, but I have tried to do a bit of digging um, to have a, a look at what seems to be happening. It does look like it's a very rapidly shifting picture, um, but I just dug out a few headlines. So... I think generally people are very aware that there was a huge drop in A&E use initially, you know, by 30 to 60% over a few months. And there were a lot of reasons for this. Obviously, there's the direct effect of lockdown, but, in, you know, there were a whole lot of other reasons have come up. You know, first off, for instance, there were less people coming in with trauma, drug and alcohol problems because people were just not out doing those things. People with long-term conditions were doing a lot more self-managing at home. Um, there was a lot more support for homeless people, so there was less people in crisis coming in. There was a lot more triaging of patients, and there were less infectious diseases because everyone was at home. So there was this huge drop, particularly in the lower acuity, um, but there was also, I think, as was quite well publicized the spike in deaths around that time with less than half of them being covid related so you know some people who should have got treatment didn't do so following that drop the levels rose back in a and e to somewhat like um, the levels they were then dropped again with the second lockdown and then have gone back to roughly normal in relation to mental health in particular because um, i know there was a lot of interest in that um, there was no initial increase in emergency presentations, but a study in one UK hospital has found increased presentations for mental health between 2019 and 2020. And another study in Italy found that mental health presentations have risen after lockdown. So there is a bit of a feeling that actually a lot of people now um, are struggling. 
In the ambulance service, certainly in the UK, there, were lit- there wasn't very much change in the level of incidents, but there was a huge drop in the number of people being transported and more people being treated on scene. And certainly when I looked at some of the literature about the US, um, there was a big increase in the refusals to go to hospital, people being worried about COVID, so coming in much later in the course of illnesses. And this seemed to be particularly true for particularly marginalised communities, which are also those which were getting the most deaths, both COVID and non-COVID related. In terms of GPs, I have to say I don't know. I haven't found any specific research. I know there is concern that some GPs may be referring people more to A&E as a way of managing their own demand. And I can also imagine because certainly for a a period of time it was very, very hard to actually see a GP, that some people might well have chosen to use another service at that time, such as A&E, where they could actually physically see someone. And one of the things that comes up in the literature a lot is once people have had a good experience of a service, they tend to go back. So if those people found actually at A&E they got what they wanted and they were treated well and they got all their needs met they're going to go back another time um, and that just adds to the problem so this whole thing about the kind of circular nature of yeah A&E was great why would I not go back there next time so this is a complex problem so what's the solution did you come up with any suggestions about how to change what was happening we had a bit of a look at this, and I think the, the question always is, do you try and change people's behaviour or do you try and change the service to meet the behaviour or do you do both? Um, it wasn't the main focus of our study, but we did do a bit. Um, we looked at existing literature about things that have been suggested, and we also ran some focus groups with those same three groups of people we were talking about earlier. And again, the people in those focus groups were all people who'd been picked up as being clinically unnecessary users, in this case, just of A&E. We thought it was important to talk to those people because they're the ones who are the ones who are seen as the problem, so solutions need to make sense to them. So there were a few key things we picked up. One of them was improvements to primary care, extended opening hours, shorter waits easier booking processes and interestingly young adults suggested there needed to be more online consultations which of course has become routine since then so there's no doubt that improving primary care is important but you need more resources for that to happen because as we know um, primary care is really struggling and to, to make those changes you need more resources Another thing that came up were more alternatives in the community. So we need more walk-in centres. They need to be more local. There were suggestions about locating different services together on the same site and also needing to raise awareness of what other other services can offer. So, for instance, chemists, pharmacists, you know, can actually offer more than people often realise And that leads on to the next one, which is about education. This particularly got highlighted by young adults. Um, They were really clear, you need to start young. You have to encourage people to learn so they grow up understanding how to make decisions about their health and how to decide which service to use. And everybody thought the alternatives needed more promotion. So 111, 
pharmacies, walk-in centres, what they can treat and when they're available to do it. It was very interesting. Even in a focus group of about five people, um, they had completely different understandings of what one, one, one offered. Some people didn't think it was 24 hours a day. You know, There's a really basic level of knowledge which still isn't there. Young adults particularly highlighted the need to improve mental health services. So that's not just about how it adds to anxiety and drives people to use services, but also the need for some much more specific crisis-focused services for people with mental health problems. And then the other one was just about tailoring services to different groups' needs. So parents felt there was a lot of need for things that were child-friendly, parent-focused. So you are never going to get a one-size-fits-all. Overall, it seems like basically you have got to tackle it from a number of angles. You're never going to solve it with one thing. And that really fits with our research. There were many, many reasons why people made the decisions they did. So if you're going to change those decisions, you have to tackle all those different dimensions to it. So as so often happens with research, the answer is that it's much more complicated than you think it is. But if you don't take account of that complexity, you just are never going to address the problem. So a complex problem with complex solutions. Yeah, I think so, in summary. Yeah. So thank you for your time, Jackie. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you.